inspiration. You were there to help me out. You just saw the need and said, can I help you? We learn a lot from watching other horses and watching other riders. I'm Julie Goodnight, and thanks for listening to my podcast about horse training and equestrian sports. Be sure to hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss a single episode. And if you get a chance, it'd be awesome if you'd give this podcast a rating and review. It helps me out a lot, and it helps other horse lovers find this podcast. Since the last time we recorded, summer has come to an abrupt halt around here. On September 9th, we got 10 inches of snow. We had a low of 24 degrees. So I was literally on the lake fishing, swimming, and boating one day for Labor Day with temperatures in the 90s. And the next day we got hit with a winter storm and the snow just fell for 36 hours and uh, we got a major dump. So um, both of these weather events were unseasonable in nature, uh, but not really unheard of here in the mountains of Colorado. Um, just a few days before the snow, we were in the midst of a very severe drought. We had wildfires raging around us and the skies were so filled with smoke at times that it completely blotted out the sun. It, it caused um, choking in your throat and burning in your eyes. You had to stay inside. So we actually had a few days where the air quality was too poor to work horses. So we are grateful that the snow came, even if it shut off our summer a little bit early. I'm sure we're still going to have some uh, beautiful fall days yet to come. And, and I'm looking forward to more riding uh, prior to this snowstorm, I took my young horse Pepperoni up into the high mountains for his uh, first trail ride in the high mountains. We, we've done a lot of riding in the foothills and lower down in the mountains, but he's just now four years old and it's not recommended to take horses younger than that up into the high mountains. And for good reason, we were in some steep, rocky places. We had you know, down timber we were crossing and, and tricky uh, creek crossing, bogs and logs and all that kind of stuff. But Pepper did really well. I was super happy with him. I'm glad I got him up into the high mountains before it snowed because this, this snow will probably make most of those trails inaccessible for the rest of the year. I wrote about that trip in my blog this month, which I've turned now into a blog series on the making of a trail horse. Be sure to check out my blog at juliegoodnight.com slash blog. I'm slowly but surely getting back to doing horsemanship clinics again since um, middle of March and the economic shutdown due to the pandemic. I haven't been able to travel and do clinics as usual, but this fall we're easing back into uh, regular horsemanship clinics with a little bit of a difference. So in the next six weeks, I've got five different trips to take. Fortunately, um, all of those are going to involve driving. Most of them are going to involve driving, so that'll help. I'm doing three clinics up at the Sea Lazy U Ranch, and they're really awesome programs up there. We have a ranch riding adventure program. I have a um, fall getaway vacation program. I co-teach with Barbara Schulte. And then we're also doing a horsemanship immersion program up at the Sea Lazy U. 
And then I have a couple of private clinics scheduled. That seems to be the wave of the future where I'll be working with smaller groups and in, you know, on a private basis. And if you're interested in finding out more about that, please go to juliegoodnight.com where you'll also find all the innovative tack and equipment we sell, plus some cool toys for you and your horse. That's at shop.juliegoodnight.com. Check out all my online training programs and streaming services at signin.juliegoodnight.com. Today's topic is about the genetic profile test report for Doc Gunner. Just as a reminder, Doc Gunner is a four-year-old deaf paint horse that was rescued in December 2019 from a kill pen. He was rehabilitated and then ultimately sent to me in the middle of May of 2020. That's about four months ago. We've been sharing his training and development live on Facebook throughout all this time. So you can find those videos on YouTube or Facebook. Keep in mind that we have no history on this horse prior to December of his three-year-old year when he was rescued in Kansas. He then ended up in Oklahoma City with the ASPCA's Regional Support Center, and ultimately he was shipped here to Colorado. I picked him up on the Front Range of Colorado at the Harmony Equine Center, and that's a equine rescue and law enforcement facility that's owned and operated by the Denver Dumb Friends League. We've had this four-year-old paint horse uh, for about four months of rehab and training now. We've had quite a few struggles with him, many of them medical, some of them behavioral, uh, but I'm happy to report that right now he's going really well under saddle at the Rock Walk Trot and Canner. Uh, we believe he's ready for adoption to the right family. But a couple of weeks ago, we pulled some tail hairs out of Doc Gunner, and we sent them off to Edelon Diagnostics in California for full genetic testing. So given that we know nothing about this horse's breeding or history, it was important to me to get as much data as I could because my job as his foster trainer is to give this horse the rehab and the training he needs to be successful for the rest of his life so that he'll never end up at risk again. So the more answers I have, the easier it is to do my job. So today I'm really excited to have two expert guests in the field of genetic testing and equine veterinary medicine, Krista Lafayette, founder and CEO of Edelon Diagnostics in Menlo Park, California, and Dr. Ben Buchanan from the Brazos Valley Equine Hospital in Navasota, Texas. Please join us as we review the full genetic report on Doc Gunner and his unique physical traits. We'll get answers to some medical questions we've had and how we'll manage this horse going forward. Plus, we'll talk about his unique temperament and character and how that relates to his performance potential and how that is evident in his genes. Krista Lafayette is founder and CEO of Edelon Diagnostics. Thanks for joining us today, Krista. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm super excited to talk about your boy. Yeah, it's going to be fun. But before we jump into that, I'm kind of curious, um, you know, first of all, tell me a little bit about Edelon Genetics. Uh, what business are you in? And, um, you know, how, how might our viewers be interested in your services? Well, uh, we're kind of a unique little group of um, horse nerds, if you will. 
Um, we are all scientists. Uh, most of us are located here in Silicon Valley, California. Some of us are spread around uh, the nation and around the world. Um, and we are all horse people. And a few years back, we had some notions about things that we wanted to help us with our horses and kind of enhance our lives. And we sort of figured out a way to create what we call a kind of a crowdsourced science setting for our animals such that we can discover new things about them that help us better our lives, better their lives, um, and um, even enhance competition, uh, healthcare, feeding, all those things at the same time kind of helping people. That's awesome. And crowdsourced research is an interesting um, thought right there. And so you were doing genetic testing exclusively of horses? Uh, well, not exclusively in horses, but that is what's going on on the commercial side. That's the publicly available service that we offer. We um, do collaborate with other folks, other species and other things going on in the world at an increasing level. But the, as I was saying, the kind of public facing side of Edelon is all about horses, horse people and the horse equestrian lifestyle. Well, that's very cool. And we're going to get into that in a big way. But I'm also quite interested in your background. And you're, you're a um, Silicon Valley tech person, biotech in particular. You've got quite a interesting background, including work with NASA. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> so there are a subset of us here at Edelon who were partners in crime um, a few years ago back in NASA. We helped NASA at Moffett here in Mountain View, sort of, um, how do I explain it? Let's see, we took over their biomedical facility at their request in order to sort of help with their research program there at the NASA campus, again, here only in Mountain View, um, and also to bring in outside groups into the NASA um, facility to kind of grow the incubator space. Um, some of them were science and some of them were tech, let alone fact, um, we actually brought Tesla in. Uh, that's where they started uh, road oh, testing wow. some of their, uh -huh. that's what the runway was used for, <laughs> for a little while. Um, and some other interesting projects like that. Um, the company that we founded there, the, the subset of us, again, this is not Edelon, but some of the team members, the company that we had founded there at that point was called LifeSource Biomedical. And it specialized in the preclinical clinical realm. And that means anytime um, there is a drug or therapeutic or medical device that is in development for human therapeutics, you have a res responsibility and a requirement by the FDA to first test it in animals, which is not our favorite thing in the world as animal lovers. And so we have a responsibility to do that in a way that is ethical, um, reduces the amount of, of effort and um, animal requirement. I, I'm not sure if I'm saying this right, we'll probably have to edit the heck out of this part, but um, <laughs> what we have to do is we have to reduce and refine those types of protocols so that we use the least number of animals and cause the least amount of harm possible in order to get those therapeutics proven and useful in the human realm. Does that make sense to you? 
Sure, it makes sense. So there's certainly all kinds of scientific research going on in in NASA and the space stations and and supporting that work and facilitating um, effective and and ethical work certainly is important work and must have been fascinating. And so your background is diverse in the biotech. Uh, world and it seems like it's more at the executive level, at the management level. Um, is that accurate? Uh, well, I think that the whole team is pretty diverse. Um, as an example, one of the folks that is um, one of our lead advisors is Dr. Russell Kirschman. He's actually a human MD. And he was at NASA as well. He has authored a book about, of all things, space dust. And you kind of think, well, um, what's the dirt on that? Sorry, I had to. <laughs> um, but the point is that <laughs> space dust, in, in particular, dust from Mars and from the moon, is extremely toxic, little known fact. It is, mm. because it is formed in zero gravity, it's basically like our dust, except with razor sharp edges all around it. Mm. And it destroys mm. everything. Thing. Every single mission it gets in the suits, it gets in the equipment. God forbid you should breathe it. It will kill you. Wow. And all these little things need to be studied in humans and in animals. And so that was part of the collaboration. Frightening and fascinating at the same time. Well, let's uh, let's, let's skip to the uh, lighthearted stuff then. <laughs> and you're all horse nerds. I love that. And um, so tell me... Uh, particularly about your horse world. Um, what Do you have a horse? I am a recovering addict. I'm down to one at the moment. Down to one. Very good. I'll fall off the wagon. I'm sure I'm going to fall off the wagon here very shortly, um, uh-huh. especially if the Buchanan brothers have anything to do with it. The more horses I'm around, the more trouble I get into. But, you know. I know that feeling well. So are you, what dis- what's your chosen discipline and breed? Oh boy. Um, if it has four legs and looks like a horse and smells like a horse, I'm there. I've ridden Okay, polo. come on. You can do better than that. Go out on a limb. What's your next horse going to be? Oh, you know, I have to tell you, I, I had an adventure about a year and a half ago where I went on my very first hunt down in Aiken with the good folks at Bellmead. Wow. Fox hunter? It was spectacular. This is probably one of the most exciting things I've ever done. I can't believe I lived through it. I will definitely do it again. I would definitely choose at the very least a jumper. I would like to uh, resume hunting if that was possible for me. Well, you know, you got to love those fox hunters that are field hunters, good, strong, stout, level-headed horses. It'll just forge ahead, go through anything. So... Um, I'm with you. I, I like I like all horses, and you know my first love in horses with th- was thoroughbreds. Or actually, my very first was Morgans. Um, grew up with thoroughbreds, so and now I'm a pretty much a quarter horse person. But I love all horses, and um, so Dr. Ben Buchanan, um, truly a Texas man, and uh, veterinary medicine seems to run in your family. Your father's a vet. Your brother's a vet. Your wife's a vet. Um, I guess your kids aren't old enough to be vets yet, but are they headed that way? Uh, it depends on the day. Um, it's, 
you know, my my sister-in-law, and there's a couple cousins and some aunts. It, there's a variety of the family tree that is in the veterinary medicine. Well, that's awesome. And so you're at the Brazos Valley um, Equine Hospital. And um, tell us a little bit about that operation. You're in several locations in Texas, and you have a stallion station. Is that correct? Yes, my the practice my father started um, you know, locally here in Navasota. He'd already always practiced since about the mid '60s, but built the first concrete you know hospital in the mid '80s, and it's grown since then to be a full service hospital referral center in Salado, Texas, just outside of Austin, and then a, a referral medicine and surgery center up in Stephenville, which is just, you know, outside of Fort Worth a little bit. Um, the hospital locally here, it's grown from six stalls to about 60 stalls. Um, and we do everything. And then the big breeding center up in Stephenville. And so it well, grew from a small eight stall hospital to a big multiple location operation. Wow. And, and you, how many stallions are you managing at this station? Um, so we manage some locally here. There's they manage some in Salado, and if you include the guys that that haul in and then go home and they don't stay for very long, they're probably pushing close to fifty. Um, I think wow. twenty something, twenty twenty two full time resident stallions in the stallion station up in Stephenville. But that is also a, a rehab center and a sale fitness facility. And so there's lots and lots going on. I think they collected um, or they used, either collected and shipped or used something close to 2,500, 2,600 doses of semen last year. And so a lot of, lot of collecting and shipping and breeding on farm. It's, it's a pretty busy operation in the spring. I guess it's it's a huge operation. Well, the whole uh, veterinary system you've got there is pretty huge operation. And of course, you're in uh, one of the top horse states in the country. So I was curious to look at the stallions and uh, assuming going in, they would be mostly quarter horses and being that you're in Texas, but you've actually got quite a diverse uh, selection of breeds there. I was, I thought that was pretty cool. It'd be fun to, uh, fun to see um, all those horses and go stallion shopping uh, sometime. <laughs> um, what's a typical uh, day for you, uh, Dr. Buchanan? What's like, what do you expect to happen in the course of your day or week? Um, we don't expect anything to happen because it never goes as planned. And so <laughs> we just expect chaos. And it's much easier to handle that way if you just expect it to be chaotic. Um, so your um, your um, your internal medicine and critical care. So you, so everything gets thrown at you. So you never know what day will be. You know, I do a lot of lameness as well in sports medicine. And so we'll see if those cases will be scheduled, but, you know, a colic will come in or, a, you know, I've got multiple bad eye ulcers in the hospital right now. Um, in the spring, lots of sick folds and newborn babies and breeding, you know, delivery type problems. So every day is a little bit different and you never know exactly what's going to come in. Wow. So you're really, truly seeing it all. Plus some stuff I would imagine on the emergency side that, some vets might not ever see. Yeah, we get to have fun, and it makes it interesting. So it's never a dull moment. <laughs> never a dull moment. I guess so. 
Well, we're here today to talk about this uh, little four-year-old paint horse we've got, and I'm his foster trainer, and my job is to get him uh, the skills he needs to be successful in his life, to get him healthy, and get him ready for adoption. We've been working pretty hard at that. He's he's had some, taken us down quite a few different roads on the uh, medical, physical side. Um, he's He's stone cold deaf, so that complicates his um, training. But I have to say, we don't really see a lot of negative um, on that. He's he's a super gentle, kind, willing uh, horse. He now, if you if he doesn't know you're there and you pop into his field of vision, he'll certainly spin around and look pretty fast. But I wouldn't call him spooky by any means. He's he's very gentle, very very mellow. Um, super easy to get along with. Um, and so I'm, I've been working with Krista and Edelon for a while now, just because genetic research fascinates me on, um, I think the medical side is, is great. And, um, certainly the color research has been huge. Um, I'm I'm not particularly um, interested in horses of of color, so I haven't kept up with that side of it. But the medical side and the um, particular, I'm particularly fascinated, Krista, by behavior genetics and the research that you're doing on that and how that relates to how we train and handle and interact with horses and even select horses and, and or select the right people for the horse, which is the case with Doc Gunner. So we sent away the tail hairs to Edelon Diagnostics a couple of weeks ago. Tell us what, Krista, what has happened since you received that. And first of all, a little bit about your process, and then let's jump into Doc Gunner's results. Sure, sure. Yeah, his results are pretty impressive. Um, he's got a lot going on. And he definitely is a, a pretty shining example of why you would want to conduct genetic testing in an animal. He's unknown. You're working on him. He's displayed a few kind of mystery problems. And you're looking to see where his future is going to go. And so these are the kinds of, of questions where the genetic insight may be of, of a, a, quite a bit of assistance. Um, as you said, you pull tail hairs, and it can be mane hairs or tail hairs are the best option. And you can send in a sample of that. And what we'll do, we receive the hairs, and we will take the root bulbs, the part of the hair where you pull it out, there's kind of a little white tip that you can see, or maybe a little hook, maybe a little ball. That contains the roots of the hair, and the DNA is, is concentrated in those regions. You can get DNA from hair shafts, but it tends to be less optimal. It's fractured. Um, it just doesn't give you as nice a clean read as root hairs do. Um, we will extract the DNA and make sure that it is clean, that it is uh, high concentration, that it is quality that we want. And then depending on what we're going to do with the horse next, we will um, run the genetics on the horse, run an analysis and take a look at the sequences we see and if they match or do not match with what we know exists already. Um, for instance, we might run um, a color test on, on a horse and we'll take a look and see 
what the base coat color is, if we can recognize any known lights or any known patterns or modifiers, and then we'll go ahead and report those things back. If we find that, for instance, a horse with a lot of white doesn't show any known whites, that's when we'll go back and take a deeper dive into the DNA sample that we've run to see if we can look in the regions of suspect and find something new. And if we find something that looks like it might be new and it might be active, that's when we'll circle back to the owners and say, all right, guys, I think we found something cool here, but we need to confirm it. And usually you need more numbers to confirm that sort of thing. And that's how we sort of solve a lot of these color problems very quickly. Some of them are easier than others. Just a, just a caution there. <laughs> we do have people calling saying, I need to know what this white is. And sometimes it's easy to find and sometimes it's not. So each mm -hmm. one is unique. Um, and the same is true for health. Um, health is a little more difficult because it isn't always obvious. Um, for instance, the horse that Ben is speaking about, if, you, if you're dealing with an animal or even, even Doc Gunner, as you explained, that's been treated for cancer and you can see the cancer and you can have the cancer evaluated, we can then start to look for genetics that maybe lend themselves to an increased um, susceptibility for that type of cancer, um, sure. or maybe even resistance, depending on you know the family and what you're seeing in that animal. Um, in the case of Doc Gunner, we ran the DNA analysis in all of the different regions for color and for performance and for health, and we found he has a lot going on. As I said, I'm not exactly sure where you want me to start. What what was it about the report that struck you right off the bat? Well, I there's a lot of information in this report, and it's very intricate. I think that it's very cool that the report is written so that a layman can read it and that you give a lot of references to where you can get further explanations. And, you know, I the color genetics, I think, are interesting in that they're related to his deafness. So uh, as his trainer, I'm you know, interested in more in, in his health and temperament and performance ability. But the, the deafness is, is an area of curiosity for me. I, I've only worked with one other deaf horse in my career. So out of, you know, thousands of horses that I've worked with, um, the only other one that I know of that was deaf was just one and also a paint horse with a white, um, Face. So let, let's just start right there. When you look at this horse, and we'll be sure to put pictures up um, so that people can match a visual to what we're talking about. But when you look at this horse, the most distinctive thing that you see is a white head. So um, let's start with what the genetic report revealed about that and how it's related to his deafness. Well, this boy has quite a few um, markers for white pigmentation. I'm going to focus on the rare one that he's got. He does, he is positive for lethal white ovara, which is very common, but he's also positive for one variant of splashed white three. And splashed white three is a fairly rare mutation um, based on our random sampling of about 15,000 horses in our database. It looks like the prevalence is about one in 500 horses. That's it's quite rare. And it is, it's a known, what we call a deletion. There's a chunk missing out of his genome in a region called MITF, MITF. 
and that causes depigmentation um, and depopulation of melanocytes. And if you don't have melanocytes, melanocytes are the supportive mechanism by which the cilia, which are the little nerve hairs inside of your cochlea, inside of your ear function to hear. Um, and, and the lack of the pigmentation there might be the root cause of his deafness. But I think, I think Dr. Buchanan is probably better to speak to that than I am. Dr. Buchanan, you want to explain deafness due to depigmentation? Um, it's it, essentially what you, the way you're explaining it is pretty accurate in how I would approach it as well. But the melanin, melanocytes are also important in the development of nerves and the, the sheaths that coat the nerves. And whenever you have areas of lack of melanocyte migration, um, you have neurologic dysfunction and deafness being one of them. Um, the lethal white ovaro often leads to some GI problems for a lack of nerve development as well. And so, you know, any of those genetic defects that affect migration or production of melanocytes leads to some sort of neurologic issue. And in this case, it's a lack of hearing. Is deafness common in horses? No. I can think of two horses out of the hundreds of thousands that we've looked at that I know for certain were deaf. Um, full deafness, because that's easier to prove than partial deafness. Um, mm. So how common partial deafness would be, I don't know. There's ways to test hearing in horses. Um, but a truly deaf horse is an unusual, an unusual finding. And in, and it's commonly um, connected to this genetic deletion. Yes, blue eyes and white hairs and genetics that lead to those things of lack of pigmentation in other areas mm -hmm. of the body um, also can be a sign that you may have some issues with the nerves and the ears. Mm-hmm. Well, we can get into his, um, you know, the effects of on his behavior and training and temperament and, and all that later in the report. But I think the most, probably the most important aspect of this report for me, being res the person responsible for managing his health, is what we found out about the HERDA and the HYPP and um, how that you know, the implications of that and and how I can better manage this horse. So Krista, can you take us through that health portion of the genetic report? Certainly. So again, this, this boy has um, a, a really interesting report. He has a lot of activity, a lot of variants that we found. Um, we did find that he is positive for one HERDA variant that it's hereditary equine regional dermal asthenia. And I will again defer to Dr. Buchanan on that. Um, our preliminary finding on that variant is that he's a carrier, which means there's no known activity or no known consequence that's in the publication, that's in the scientific literature for being a carrier. But you would not want to cross him with another HERDA carrier because if the offspring inherits two copies, that's when you'll see the actual disease. Um, Dr. Buchanan, do you, do you have comments about uh, carriers of HERDA? Do you see any kind of indication that it's a problem in as one copy? Um, it is 
I don't think it's as clear for me as as the HYPP being a partial. Um, clinically, they can be affected even with just one copy. I do feel like the HERDA horses, the NH horses, have abnormal collagen from in variation variable as far as their um, risk for developing suspensory desmitis, which is my concern. Um, you know, it, the full-on HERDA cases often have really fragile skin that tears easily, um, and it makes them horses that you can't ride because the saddle and the pads create such dramatic skin lesions. Um, but the partial horses will sometimes have um, not normal skin, but not skin that tears like that. But I feel like they are at a higher risk for developing some other collagen-related injuries like a suspensory injury. If I could just ask a question real quick, and you might want to think about this one. Um, a lot of our owners and breeders seem to think that herded carriers are better performers at a younger age because of increased flexibility of the joints. We don't get hurt at a younger age. Do you think that that's even a possibility? There are a couple of papers about it, but they're they're not really all that definitive. Uh, the it's a I think that's a possibility. There's also some performance genetics associated with horses that are herd of carriers, and mm -hmm. so the reason that it pops up in the cutting horse line is because the horses that um, were successful in the show pen and successful breeding carried the gene. And so there may be some other closely related performance genes associated with it. It may be that the herd itself makes them more flexible. Yeah, we have an ongoing study, but it'll be a little while before we come out with those results because it relies, as you know, on feedback and, and show scores from the owners themselves to, to get to the yeah. bottom of it, as it were. Very, compli very complicated and difficult to, to tease out. As far as management, then, just strictly of the herd, and then we'll get into the HYPP, um, is there anything that we can be doing for him that would help? So my worry from a use um, athletic performance standpoint is the suspensories. And mm -hmm. So not working the horse past fatigue because, you mm -hmm. know, in, in horses, once you get them um, fatigued, they're unable to really protect themselves. And so if you have any area in the suspensory or the deep digital flexor tendon, and the apparatus that supports the leg when it's under load, some of those will tear if they get too fatigued. And so I would just be a little more slow or cautious in the fitness and the training regimen with him than maybe a horse that had a lack of the herd of gene. And just sure. don't push him too, too hard. You know, get him fit and then work him up a little slower than you might another four-year-old. Well, that makes good sense. And and. Fortunately, that's what we've been doing just sort of out of gut instinct, but also because uh, this horse just has had very little to give. I mean, he's he's not being, you know, lazy or obstinate. Um, he just he just gives out really fast. And uh, so we it's a it's a very treading a very fine line and when you're trying to increase his conditioning and muscle tone and and then not push him to that point. I, I don't feel we've come close to pushing him to the point of, of any kind of um, soft tissue damage, but that's really good advice. And um, it's an important affirmation, I think, of what we've been doing. So 
Let's talk about the HYPP. And um, Krista, maybe you could get us started with telling, letting, uh, letting us know what the genetic report told us. So there again, um, the genetic report um, indicates that he's got one copy of the HYPP variant. That means we found one copy. He has a space for two. He could inherit one from each parent, in which case he would have two copies or he'd be HYPP slash HYPP. He does not have that. He has one copy. Um, this is uh, a dominant gene. There are those who will say that if a horse has one copy of HYPP, they'll never have symptoms. And that is not what the literature or the studies indicate. There are indications that a horse that has a copy of HYPP needs to be treated as an HYPP horse. And it is a manageable condition. But it's a good thing to know about, especially if you are training a horse and you're seeing things that appear to be some, what some would describe as laziness or uh, lethargy, they may, they may not be lazy. They may be problems associated with HYPP. And um, I think that there's probably a good list of those. I'm not an expert and I don't give medical advice, but I'm sure Dr. Buchanan can tell you all about HYPP and what he sees in his patient horses and the performance horses that, that have this. Sure. Can you start, Dr. Buchanan, with the origins of HYPP and, and what it is? Um, hyperkalemic periodic paralysis is what HYPP stands for. And it is a, a defect in some of the electrolyte channels that lead to abnormal muscular function. And essentially the hyperkalemia just means high potassium. Um, is the blood value that you find when the horses have an episode. And so the, the classic episode is a horse that collapses and has muscle spasms. And when you pull blood, their potassium is really, really elevated. You give them treatments to address the potassium and the clinical signs resolve. But it's interesting to know it's not a, a defect in the potassium channels. It's a defect in sodium channels that leads to the high potassium in the blood. That gene comes from a horse in the quarter horse lineage named Impressive. And Impressive was a very successful halter stallion, and he carried the HYPP gene, one copy of that defect, and as he bred a thousands of mares and made a substantial impact genetically in the quarter horse world, that was disseminated throughout quarter horses. And when you started to have two copies of the gene, they realize that there is a genetic defect. It leads to this muscle spasm neurologic issue. And ultimately, they did um, you know, lineage and ancestry and were able to trace it back to impressive stallion himself as the single introduction of that to the, the, the breed. And so that was one of the very first genetic defects that they had a test for, and they started to utilize in breeding programs to try to screen out the HYPP. And as Krista mentioned, it, it is for sure um, partially um, effective. So if you have one copy of the HYPP gene, you will have clinical signs. And that's well understood and documented where the HERDA is my impression is that a single copy can lead to some you know, collagen-related problems in horses. One copy of HYPP can lead to clinical signs. 
And there are several horses that have one copy of it that don't have any recognizable clinical signs that need treatment. And there's other horses that only have a single copy and they're just as bad as a true HYPP horse with both copies. And so even though it's partially effective, it's still different from horse to horse to horse to horse as far as how much, how big of an effect it has. And then huh, it's so controllable dietary-wise. Yeah, drug-wise and dietary-wise, the you can control it and control the clinical signs, um, but it ends up being a lifelong management for horses that are having clinical problems associated with that defect. So in your experience, and, and I've, I've been suspicious since I, the more information we get on this horse, the more you start formulating how did this horse end up where he did, and and that was sort of part of my um, suspicion was that somebody dumped this horse and ran away from him, um, even though he's a really nice horse that just needs some management. So if we get this management figured out, um, the, the medication and the feeding routine, the conditioning and all of that, is there any reason why we cannot continue riding him and why he couldn't be uh, a nice recreational horse for someone? No, not at all. You may or may not ever need any sort of drugs to manage the HYPP. It's it, As a partial, it's not a guarantee you'll have a problem. Um, it's just something mm -hmm. that you have to be aware of. So we have experienced at times um, this horse, you know, I've because I've cared for horses all my life, I've um, been around a lot of colics and you know, so this horse seemed to be having mild bouts of colic. This was before we knew anything about the HYPP. And, um, but I noticed they were very crampy in nature, a lot of kicking, um, sort of uh, crampy in his um, genital region, you know, stomping, backing up. Um, and do you think, and then of course, We've throughout his training experienced a lot of lethargy. He was in in poor condition when we got him, and so that has gradually improved. But um, some days he has more energy than others, and some days earlier on, I mean, he would just completely give out. One time I was working him lightly in the round pen, and he just laid down and went to sleep. Another time I was sitting on him, um, just walked a few steps. And I felt him sort of tighten up his back, not like he was going to buck or anything like that. I just like he braced his back and then I could tell he was going to lay down. So I got off. Um, do, you, are, do any of these sound like they could be symptoms of HYPP? I think the observation about the colicking is a really good one. And that's how most of them present to, to us. You know, the trainers that are in the halter horse world they recognize it, they know what it is, and they, they manage the horses, and they don't come in on emergency. It's horses mm -hmm. like, like, like Gunner that have really an unknown genetic history or unknown history, and they present as colics. But you're right, that is one of the ways that they will present here is a horse that is pawing because he's painful or crampy or tying up or colicky absolutely could be related mm -hmm. to the potassium and sodium regulation in this horse. Mm -hmm. So how then would we work with a vet to, to figure out if this horse needs medication? And then what specifically do we want to do nutritionally to make sure we 
deal with the potassium? I think the way you would try to, to document it is a lot of what you've already done, which is the genetic testing and looking at the, you know, the DNA and, and what is this horse's profile like. Additionally, in the middle of an episode, so the horse is painful, wanting to kind of colic and be crampy, running some blood and looking at the electrolytes would confirm a high potassium value, would absolutely nail the diagnosis of this is an HYPP episode. The horse has the right genetics. He's showing some mild clinical signs. He's got a high potassium. You know, you have all of the pieces you need to make a diagnosis there. And then from mm-hmm. a management standpoint, it's about avoiding potassium in the diet. So hays that are low in potassium or different grains that have less potassium in them um, are the ways you try to reduce the amount of potassium that the horse is, is eating. Lots of different mm-hmm. ways to try to manage the diet. But at the end of the day, it's about reducing the amount of potassium. If dietary management mm-hmm. isn't enough, there are drugs that we use to increase the excretion of potassium. And there are just a couple of different diuretics that will um, you can feed to the horse, increase the potassium excretion, and you're trying to reduce the amount of potassium coming in and increase the potassium going out to you know keep him mm-hmm. at a certain level where he doesn't have episodes. Well, good to know. I'm actually his vet is coming to see him tomorrow. Um, in light of this new information, the genetic test, we're going to be able to take some different approaches to his treatment, certainly. Now, this horse arrived, apparently, when he was rescued back in December, some nine or ten months ago. Um, He had this wound that would not heal on um, the outside of his Gaskin muscle on the right hind leg, and it was um, treated, and the pathology... When he was rescued, it was treated, and the pathology showed that it was excessive granulation, or rather it said uninfected uh, granulation tissue. And so I got the horse, and the wound was um, granulating way outside the skin. It was like the size of a hockey puck and getting bigger. We treated it. Um, subsequently, uh, the vet cut it out and the pathology showed that it was a sarcoid tumor and the horse has been treated with Renovo and he's also had chemotherapy and, um, cryotherapy. And I think we threw the whole cabinet at him and that sarcoid seems to, uh, we're happy with the results we're seeing so far. What in genetic testing can tell us about, if anything, can tell us about the propensity for a horse to get sarcoid tumors? And is there anything, Krista, in this horse's report that can enlighten us on this? Now you're getting into a realm that is exciting for all of us. Um, I think this is actually uh, one of Dr. Buchanan's also a little sweet spot. In your report, We don't talk about <laughs> we don't talk about his sarcoid testing. In the background, we did sequence him for predisposition for sarcoid tumors. That set of markers and quote unquote causative uh, variants for that condition are in the middle of being validated or invalidated. 
Um, I purposely didn't put those on his report because they're not public yet. We don't talk about them yet because we don't really know for sure if the markers and variants that have been identified in the literature are all that valid yet. And by valid, I don't mean that the researchers who published it made stuff up. I don't mean that at all. What I mean is, in many cases, in the equine community, a lot of the research is done on a small number of horses because, quite frankly, there's no money, right? It's very difficult to get money to fund equine research, academic or otherwise. And so many of these projects are performed in a small number of horses. And they will make preliminary findings public, which is fantastic, and they look reasonable and they look clinically sound. But until we have taken a study that started with, say, 30 to 300 horses in a cancer, in a phenotype, in a color, in a whatever it is that's more complicated, um, and ramped it up to a study of 5,000 animals, we don't really know how valid those variants may be. So what I can do, if you like, um, there will there will be more, as you know, on this horse forthcoming, like we're doing ancestry and a number of other things in the background. We can take a look at those starcoid markers. Um, I'll pass them on to Dr. Buchanan, and he can evaluate what he thinks alongside some of our other controls. And we'll try to make kind of a kind of a good guess as to whether or not his genetics indicate he was already predisposed to sarcoids, or maybe not. Does that make sense to you? Do you understand um, the difference between a validated and discovery? Sure, it makes it makes perfect sense. And I mean, really, so much of this is cutting edge research. And I would imagine on a daily basis, you guys are discovering new avenues and um, making new connections. So that's in part what's so fascinating is you know, sarcoid tumors are something that horse people have have always dealt with, I suppose, and but not very well. <laughs> you know, we, so to to think that there's um, you know more information and more understanding and better treatments coming down the road is is exciting. Uh, I, I imagine it's an exciting area of research for for you guys because it, it will impact horse ownership a lot. So we'll have to be patient on that. <laughs> yes, but I promise you we'll, we'll figure out what the answer is. And the answer may not be what we want it to be. But, you know, that's how science works. I want to, uh, did, I want, I want to touch on the temperament behavioral side of, of the genetic report. But first, is there anything else outstanding about his health genetics, uh, there's a section of the report that talks about the immune system and muscle disorders. That's where the HYPP uh, comes into play. And there's neurologic, uh, reproductive disorders, skin and hoof disorders. So is there anything else about Doc Gunner's uh, health genetics that we need to talk about? Um, only one other area that we noticed that is, again, in a, in a, it is not an effective disease. It is what we call a risk variant. That means if you have three horses in a room, the first horse is going to be at low risk for a disease. The second horse is going to be at moderate risk for disease. And the third horse could be at high risk for a disease. And we look at various causative and regional markers that indicate your risk for certain diseases. Um, in his case, he is at increased risk for ERU, 
Um, and I think without going into deep detail again, um, what you would want to do is keep in mind that if he sustains infections of the eye or is exposed to potential uh, triggers for eye infection, you would want to be more vigilant about treating his, his condition because he's probably going to be more susceptible to it and he is probably going to get it a little bit more than maybe his neighbor would, would suffer a little bit more than his neighbor would suffer. Um, do you want to comment on that condition and what causes it, Dr. Buchanan, so people understand it a little bit better? So equine recurrent uveitis is an inflammation of the uvea, which is the part of the eye back kind of behind the, the pupil that produces all the fluids. Um, Nobody really knows what causes them to set off a recurring inflammatory problem there. Um, it's an autoimmune condition. Um, there are some areas of the world and some areas of the country they think that infections with lepto, previous infections with leptospirosis, uh, with leptospira can set them off. Um, I don't find that to be a very common problem for us here. Um, but we certainly see lots of recurring uveitis cases that we don't understand what's why or how, and the treatment is aimed at you know calming down the immune dysfunction, leading to what's a pretty intense eye pain. Hmm. Well, and the two blue eyes, of course, <laughs> are sensitive, and we live at a high altitude. And the Colorado mountains. So the UV is really intense here. So we keep him covered pretty much head to toe, um, his entire ears and face and nose covered during the day. And, um, and I feel like that this horse is really, is going to do better at a lower altitude for a lot of reasons. So we're, you know, we're looking to place him, um, in a lower altitude, but is it important at any altitude? Is is the actual covering the face um, from the sun, the eyes, going to help with that? From the recurring uveitis, I don't know that it yes for risk of developing skin cancer. Um, in in horses with a lot of white, absolutely. It's just like any you know, lighter skin okay. people using sunscreen. As far as the the you the no, there's not a a any particular thing to we know that you would want to start dot gunner on relative to the recurring uveitis so we just want to watch really closely make sure his eyes are not showing any signs of infection or cloudiness oh, that'd be painful and so if you look at the eyelashes instead of pointing out they'll be pointing down and that tells you the horse is painful because he's squinting wow that's good to know okay Hmm. Great. Well, keep an eye on that. Boy, this guy's, um, <laughs> he, he keeps you hopping. Um, so as far as the trait genetics, then, um, this, as we get into these, um, the subsequent pages of this genetic report and the, the subheading other genetics, we have trait genetics and, um, there's several things here that are really interesting to me. And so, Krista, could you just explain what you're looking at in the tra trait genetics and then what Doc Gunner tells you in particular? Sure. Um, 
this is where it gets fun. <laughs> there are a number of genes we're looking at that we class, classify as discovery or novel things that um, are not typically available um, in the commercial market today. And some of those things include phenotypes, uh, things that you'll see in an animal, like lordosis. Lordosis is what we call a polygenic um, effect, where you have to have four regions of the genome we know at least. They all have to be positive. And if the horse has one, two, three, four variants, regions, I guess I'm trying to explain this very carefully. It's hard to do it without a visual. If you have all four regions positive, then that animal is 80% likely to have a very significant sway back, which we call lordosis. This was a, a discovery in the American saddlebred, the North American saddlebred. And if you've seen it, if you've seen the condition, you can't forget it. Um, it is not all that common. Um, it is only common in North American saddlebreds because as you can imagine, you'd have to get, it's like winning the lottery. You'd have to have all four of these regions be positive to get the, the affliction. And we also believe there might be some missing pieces because again, even if you have all four, there's only 80% likelihood that you show that sway back. The beauty of mm -hmm. the genetic evaluation in this case is if you have such a horse that has this incredible sway back, it doesn't seem to be affected by the sway back other than the way it looks. Um, it, moves well, it's got a great temper, it's a really nice animal, and you just are insistent on breeding that animal. If you were to cross it to another animal that does not have positive variant call in one of those regions, if one region is different or negative, the baby will not have it. Mm -hmm. So testing animals will reveal things you can already see and things you sort of guess, but it will also reveal things you can't see. Now, in his case, He's completely negative in two of the regions and only heterozygous in the other two. He could he could never throw lordosis of this type on his own. He would have to be matched with a mare that is positive in all of the other regions where he could contribute to only two. And even then, the two regions where he is completely negative would wipe out her effect. So he could not produce an animal, a baby, with this type of lordosis. And, you know, I would say that the genetic report on this horse is consistent with what we see. He's He's got a, a, a good, real flat, straight back. And uh, now that we're getting some muscle tone there, um, he's, he's looking really good. So confirmationally, I would say, um, reflects what we see in, in the genetic report here. So that's that's pretty interesting. I will carefully say again that with this particular set of genes that we're looking at in lordosis, it has so far only been found in the North American saddlebred. And then the question is, well, then why are we testing everybody for it, right? Well, the reason we're testing everybody for it is because if it developed in that group or outside of that group, however they got it, we see these markers, all of them, in other breeds. And if we see all of these markers in other breeds, it stands to reason that it's only a matter of time until the stars align and you get all four positives. The question then becomes, if all four of those regions are positive in a horse like Gunner, a quarter horse, or a paint horse, or a thoroughbred, do they then have the sway back like the North American saddlebred? We don't know. Tell me about the curiosity vigilant 
Jean? So this is a really interesting one. Um, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Uh, as, a, as a science person and a behaviorist, I would have thrown myself down on the carpet and said, absolute certainty, there's no way this is ever going to work, ever. Um, I think at this point, I'm going to have to recant what I said and the fit that I threw in the meeting when we determined whether or not we were going to use this going forward. This set of variants is based on a small study done in Japanese thoroughbreds where they measured the behavior of the horses upon entering a novel environment. They scored their behaviors on a clinical outcome sheet, and then they did a genetic-wide association study called a GWAS. And what they found were three genotypes. They found horses that they called curious. They had two copies of what they called curiosity. They found horses that had two copies of what they called vigilance. And then they had horses that had one copy of each, one copy of curiosity and one copy of vigilance. Those horses right in the middle or heterozygous horses. At this point, we've tested thousands of horses using this particular set of variants. And we've talked with a lot of owners, breeders, trainers, and performance folks in particular. And we've asked them questions. And we've asked them to send us samples and say, hey, don't tell us what you've got. We're going to come back and see if we can guess how your horse behaves. And it turns out that this, although it's still labeled as discovery, seems to hold water. And based on Doc Gunner's results, um, I can't control for the way he was raised or trained or any traumas that happened to him in his life. But I would be willing to bet that his personality is quite curious. He's probably kind of, his default is to stick his nose in things and kind of interested in what you're doing. He's the guy who comes to the front of the stall. He's the guy who crosses the pasture to come see you. He probably thinks most things are about him or for him. And he's probably quite amenable to change and trying new things out. He might be cautious. He might be hot. He might be energetic but he's still a willing partner. And I don't know if that jives with what you see in him. The opposite genotype, the vigilance vigilance, is a horse that tends to be a lot less social. They're described as aloof to aggressive. They tend to be very careful who they trust. They're picky. Um, and if they don't like you, they don't like you. And they are rules horses. We call them border collie horses. We know what the rules are. Those are the rules. We stick to them, and that's what we do. They tend to be hyper-focused, and when they like their trainer or their, their person, they are fiercely competitive. There are a couple of racehorses we've worked with who have that genotype, and they will cross the finish line first if it's only on two legs. They are just crazy hyper-focused, very obsessive-compulsive rules-oriented animals, whereas the curiosity types are on the opposite end of that spectrum much more easygoing, much more friendly and interested, and maybe a little bit ADD. But I don't know. You have to tell me what he's like. Well, I I think that you nailed it with Doc Gunner. Um, he's, he's very alert and interested in, he, you know, he always walks to the front of the pen when anyone walks out there. Even when he's out in the pasture and you walk out there, he immediately approaches, whether it's someone he knows or a stranger. I I uh, joke that he thinks of humans as his butler. Um, he's very interested in how is this going to affect me and what are you going to do for me today? And he's super willing, super curious, not scared. Um, 
he he is a horse and i i've started a lot of young horses in my career that i know for a fact had had no previous training that have been so easy to train that you just wonder if did somebody come in here in the middle of the night and train this horse already this horse is just so easy and so compliant and doc gunner's been that way he's had his moments where we maybe pushed him a little too too far or he was physically uncomfortable when we pushed him a little bit um, but by and large, he was like, whatever you want me to do, I'll do, just explain it to me. And, um, so that's great. He's very gregarious, very friendly, but it's in a sort of, what can you do for me today? Or how are you going to affect my life today? Uh, sort of way. So I, I love his temperament for training. And as you describe the double vigilant horses, I think about, um, my, uh, Morgan mare, she was a super alpha horse, uh, uh, incredible horse she could do anything you put her mind to um but she was tough she was aloof she was intolerant she would not suffer fools one little bit and um but if she if you could get something going with her you could never ride a more incredible horse whether she was climbing mountains or herding cows or jumping jumps um so I, I would have loved to have known if, if she, uh, where she fell down on that. But that's, that's who I think of when you describe that vigilant horse. So um, what about the myostatin and the speed? So that's also interesting on this horse. Um, typically, myostatin is a muscle type. And it's divided roughly into two categories for the purposes of this testing. Sprint type, animals that are fast zero to 60 in a short distance, quick bursts of speed, and endurance type. Animals who may not be as quick as zero to 60, but they can last and last and last. And the way to remember the types of animals that have these different muscle types is to think of quarter horses were bred to be quick in the quarter mile, right? So the majority of quarter horses that we test tend to come back with two copies of sprint. And they, they look like it. They're a little beefy in the rear end. They're, they're quick. Um, but they're, they're not the kind of animals that you want to take on a trek across the desert like Arabians. Most Arabians come back endurance type. And they may seem quick when you're trying to deal with them. But in reality, they are endurance type horses. They can last and last and last for miles across the desert. Much in the same way, most of the eventing warm bloods we test come back as endurance type horses. They last and last and last. This guy is unusual. There are a few horses we've tested um, that are quarter horses and paint horses that come back with one copy of each, one copy of sprint and one copy of endurance. That's a really interesting genotype because it seems that those types of horses tend to have the bursts of speed you need. And then they also, all things being fit and well with them, tend to have more endurance. Um, we've had a couple of our high performance clients come back to us and tell us these are the horses, uh, particularly um, in certain disciplines, who have the speed to get to the final competition, but then they also have the endurance to perform again to win, right? So they they have to have that little extra something to get them to the very end of the competition. Now in the racehorse industry, this gene has been, has had a lot of play. I might, I might even say a little overplay. Um, 
but the studies show that the horses that have two copies of sprint, they tend to win at an earlier age in the shorter distance, around two to three years of age, they win. Um, the horses that have endurance don't win until they're older. They're, I think, six or four to six months older when they start to win in the races and they win in the longer distance races. And the horses that win all three lengths of the big races, what do you think they are? Both endurance? Yes, they're both. They're both one copy of sprint and one copy of endurance. Secretariat is an example. Yeah, so that's what Doc Gunner has. He does. And it is an unusual genotype for quarter and paint horses. Um, and it, right now the evidence is early, but it looks like this is a nice combination to have if you're going to be performance horse oriented. Well, that's that's great to know. And and as we feel him getting healthy now and stronger and putting on muscle tone, we're starting to feel he's not a lazy horse at all. And and he when you ask when you ask for the go, you get it. He's just he's just mellow, slow. I would say more of a pleasure type of horse, but when you ask for the speed, he gives it. Um, so I think that's good to know. And I just have one last question on this um, sprint and endurance gene and what, what we found out there. Is that related in any way to the HYPP? Is it going to help him to have this um, this combination of genes or is it totally unrelated? It's hard to say what the interaction is. I think the obvious answer is even if he has the genes to be endurant and tolerant and go a long distance, if he's got muscle cramps, that's, that's going to be a problem, right? In, in any performance horse, if, if you have had a, a lack of nutrition and care and you have underlying disease conditions that are further going to handicap you, I don't think you can evaluate something like myostatin on him until he is in fighting fighting shape, right? And it sounds like you're getting there. It sounds like once he's beefed up and he's got muscle and he's being fed properly and his medical conditions are alleviated, I think once you have the HYPP under control, he's probably going to show you what he can really do. And it sounds like with the with the personality type and his willingness, he'll do whatever he can do. I I think it's manageable. Absolutely. I have to agree. And I, I will say that we feel like we're teetering right on the edge of this horse just really blossoming and taking off. And with this additional information that we have now from the genetic report, your expert explanation, uh, Krista Lafayette from Edelon Diagnostics and Dr. Ben Buchanan from the Brazos Valley Equine Hospital, your explanations of the medical situations and the advice on the management and where we need to go from here in terms of coming up with a plan with our vet, making sure we give this horse the best care he can get. It's really been invaluable and fascinating. And I certainly appreciate both of you from t taking the time out from your busy schedules today to join me on this podcast. Next month, we're going to talk about even more about the more extensive genetic testing on Doc Gunner. I appreciate both of you joining. Thank you, Krista and Dr. Buchanan. Thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate Absolutely. the opportunity. Yeah, thank you very much.
Chris, I've really enjoyed going over this genetic testing report on Doc Gunner. A lot of fascinating information here, not only just about his color, which is, uh, of course, quite intricate, but his health and his behavior. It's been really fascinating. But the one question we still don't have answers to is about his ancestry and his heritage, where he might have come from and what his breeding actually is. So uh, what can you tell us about that? Well, so that's to be discovered yet. We are running that now. That's a much larger platform. And we're going to run a combination of his ancestry and then a very, very um, large platform for his parentage markers. We developed a new type of parentage um, technology here at Elon that will provide you with much more detailed information about the animal that you're testing instead of like the traditional 12 or 13 markers that are used. They're called STRs or MSATs, which is pretty old technology. This is one to 200 different markers. And in doing so, we can look and match him against any horses that have ever had that test done to see if we can figure out where he came from. We may or may not have his parents or siblings in our database. However, that's when we start to reach out to our partners, like the audience here. You know, have any of you had horses that are positive for splashed white three? If they were, where did they come from? Because that's a clue. It's a very, very rare variant. The other partner we're going to reach out to here to solve this case, if we can, is the American Paint Horse Association, uh, led by Billy Smith. We're going to reach out with what we know, and we're going to try carefully to trace the animal's whose owners have given us permission to look into their bloodlines to see if we can find, do we have samples, can we get samples of horses that closely match the genotype of your horse, Doc Gunner, and run them on our platform and find out whether or not their relatives, parents, siblings, aunts, uncles, so on and so forth, we might be able to figure out where he came from and he might be able to be re-registered and have a normal, happy APHA life. Wow, wouldn't that be something? Well, that's exciting. It sounds uh, very complicated and, and like it might take some time. Does, does it just take time to compute the data? Part of it, part of it um, does just take computing time. But then in cases like this, where you have parts of the puzzle, but not all of the puzzle, it also takes human brain time, a little bit of forensic research and some bioinformatics number crunching to figure out what the right pathway is. There are sometimes things here that lead us in the right direction and some things that may have mislead us. I, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but I wonder, his name is Doc Gunner, which immediately people look at him, see a white face and blue eyes and go, oh yeah, that's a Gunner horse. But in my experience, Gunner horses are usually splashed white too, which is a different mutation than splashed white three. So I wonder, where did he get the name Doc Gunner? Is that left over from whoever owned him and he really is a Gunner lineage? Or did somebody just look at him and say, oh, yeah, that's a Gunner and slap that label on him? And actually, he's not. We don't know. Well, I've asked myself that very question many, many times. And it's certainly an interesting puzzle. And I thank you so much for for putting the time and energy into trying to determine his parentage. And so then my last question for you is, will you be willing to come back next month, next month on my podcast and talk about the results you found? Are you kidding? How much fun is this? 
It's been great fun. And again, Krista Lafayette, CEO and founder of Edelon Diagnostics. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for this valuable information. Next month, we'll continue this fascinating conversation and we'll talk about Doc Gunner's ancestry report and how you might benefit from genetic testing with your horse and how genetic testing will impact the future of the horse industry. Don't forget to check out my online membership programs. You'll find the solutions you need when you need them. You can subscribe to my full training library or enroll in a horsemanship short course or join at the premier level, the Interactive Academy, where you receive assignments and personalized coaching from me. Go to juliegoodnight.com join and sign up now. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss next month's podcast. I enjoy sharing my horse care and training experience with you, and I appreciate all your feedback, suggestions, and questions. I love to hear what topics interest you the most. So if you have questions or podcast topics you'd like me to address, please message me on Facebook at Julie Goodnight or email me at podcast at juliegoodnight.com. Thanks again for your awesome comments and for the five-star ratings. They're awesome. It helps me out a lot and it helps us rise in the rankings so more horse lovers like you and me find this podcast. I'm Julie Goodnight. Thank you for listening and enjoy the ride. Be sure to visit juliegoodnight.com slash academy for more in-depth training advice. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate your good review on iTunes so more horse lovers just like you can find my podcast. Thanks for listening and don't forget to enjoy the ride. Thank you.